the story of significance. Robert Lewis, an author, was speaking to a group of very busy people, and he said something that got my attention and the attention of everybody in the room. He said, mirror, mirror on the wall. Am I doing any good at all? George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life is asking that question throughout the movie. George Bailey played by Jimmy Stewart. Uh, maybe some of y'all remember me doing an impression of him. Brilliant. <laughs> memorable. Well, maybe memorable. I don't know. <laughs> of Jimmy Stewart. In the middle of this, this story of significance. He's having a difficult time seeing where in his life he's measuring up because he's trying to find his significance in those things that you can measure. It's a little like the guy who mowed his lawn that day just to see that something got done, right? I thought that would get a reaction. I thought somebody in here has done that besides me, right? Have you all never done that? I mean, just, let's just mow the lawn just to see that something today got done. Measuring, reducing your worth to measurements, to what you can see and feel and taste and touch and smell. It does reduce life. It reduces it down from significance to success. We, we measure way too much. We've gotten into a horrible habit of speaking of people's worth and meaning their net worth. What is Bill Gates worth? And it begs the question, can, can we, in this if and then kind of world, where if I get, make the grade, then I feel like I've achieved something. If she says yes, then life will make sense. If, if uh, I, I make things work in my job or or if if I close the deal then then I'm significant in this if and then world where some days it's a diamond and some days it's a stone is it possible to have a constant sense of significance where does significance really come from can we find significance and meaning in life day to day in plenty and in want in joy and in sorrow in sickness and in health Let's ask that question from Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and in that time betrothed meant engaged, of course, but it, it carried the weight of marriage itself. It was a binding act to betro be betrothed. Before they came together, she was found to be with child, from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Unquote. Which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God bless us today through his word. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Shug Jordan was uh, the head football coach of, of uh, Auburn. And uh, uh, just to say that, I know it's, some people are annoyed. But, um, but he was the, the football coach uh, from 1951 to 1976. And he was doing some recruiting. And he, he asked one of his old players, uh, Mike Collin, to help him recruit. And uh, Mike said, well, what kind of players are we looking for? And he said, well, you know... You know the kind of player where you knock him down and he gets back up and you knock him down and he stays down? And Mike says, we don't want that kind of player, do we, coach? He said, no, no, we don't want that player. But you know the player who you, you, you knock him down and he gets back up and you knock him down and he gets back up and you knock him down and he gets back up? He says, that's the kind of player we want, right? He said, no. He said, well, what are we looking for, coach? He said, we were looking for the guy who keeps knocking everybody down. <laughs> Measuring our success is easier sometimes than, than other times. Some days a diamond, some days a stone. And so in the midst of the highs and lows of life, you know, you have to ask yourself, how high does praise take you? And how low criticism? It's a great question to discern how much of your sense of self-worth is based upon your success, your performance. In the midst of a performance-based world, how do we find significance? Where does it come from? And how do we grow it? Those are two questions. Where does our significance come from? Where do we get it? And how do we grow it? First, where do we get it? Where do we get our real, true, lasting, enduring significance? Well, obviously, if we are made for God, then we can get it no other place than God. If, if the human being, this, this, as Shakespeare says through Hamlet, he says, what is this quintessence of dust? If this quintessence of dust is made for God, then we can find our significance nowhere but in him. St. Augustine, my, one of my favorite quotations. You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. What's the alternative? If we don't find our significance in God, what's the alternative? Well, it's to try to construct it yourself. Let's see how that works. If we cannot find our worth and significance in God, then we have to invent it ourselves. Let's see how that works. This is from Stephen Jay Gould's The Meaning of Life. He was a paleontologist at Harvard, uh, died about a decade ago, 
wrote a bunch of books, very popular books. This one's called The Meaning of Life, which is a very ironic title. He says, We are here because one odd group of fishes had a particular fin anatomy that could transform into legs of terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising out of Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists, he says. This explanation, though superficially troubling, superficially troubling? If not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. Why do people discount greater meaning of life? Why do they discount transcendence? Why, why do they look at their face in a mirror and go away and forget what they look like, as the scriptures say? Why do they do this? Mainly it's because of our original problem. We just don't want to be accountable to anyone but ourselves. Listen to what he says. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers ourselves from our own wisdom and ethical sense. There's no other way. Ethical sense? He hasn't thought it all the way through. He skipped from being a scientist to being a philosopher, but not a very good one. Because the philosophers have already shown us in the words of, of, uh, uh, Isaac, uh, of um, Dostoevsky in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, Ivan Kar- Karamazov says this. He says, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. If there is no God, there is no ethical sense. And so he hasn't thought it all the way through. In fact, he doesn't even live by this standard that he projects. I'll show you that in a minute. You see, what's happening here is is that here's a man who, like so many around us, are trying to reduce life down to what we can measure and control. And he's saying that, that the, the universe put itself together. But, but the, the, the thing that we're missing is, is our face in the mirror. The universe put itself together in a very particular way. I mean, it's amazing. But you have to see it through a lens of truth. You, you, you can't see it any other way. How can you look at this universe that put itself together with, with sight and sound and taste and smell and touch? And, and, look at, and you look at your face and you say, oh, wow, what a coincidence. Our face just happens to be able to do those five things. How amazing that the universe just put itself together around those five senses so that we can perceive them and interact with them. It just, just what an amazing set of coincidences that, that here's this universe that can be tasted, that can be touched, that can be smelled, that can be seen, that can be felt, that can be heard. And independently, by no influence of the environment around, independently, your face just, it just grew that way. 
It's just, I, I, I say it that way almost slightly in a mocking way just because, it, it, and I, I feel sorry. I feel sorry for people who, do, because what they're missing, what they're missing is the great purpose. They're missing the purpose. Why is this world so anxious? Why is this world increasingly anxious? Do you think there's a correlation between our distance from God and the increase of anxiety? You bet there is. Because if I don't well know what I'm for, then I'm going to be purposing myself for something else. The, the, let, me, let me explain. Let me illustrate this for just a minute. The, the great, one of the great illustrations of, uh, 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 of the design theory is called Paley's, Paley's theory. It has to do with a watch. If, you, if you're out in the woods and you, and, and you discover this uh, a watch and you don't know what this thing is, but you look and you take it apart and, and it's got gears and it's got hands and it's got, you know, it's got springs and all that, you, you, you presume that somebody made it. It's not just its parts, right? Its parts work together towards a whole, and so there's some purpose in it, and so then when you see there's a purpose, when you see there's a design, then you presume upon a designer. That's Paley's argument. Now, what if, uh, what if I walked up to somebody, and just imagine that I walked up to somebody, and they have a watch, and they're using it as a hammer. <laughs> you know, I just, all right, let's, let's, let's see how this works. All right. Somebody gave me this watch. This is not a watch that I would buy for myself, so I would never use this as a hammer. But just, you know, just kind of trying to hammer in a nail, right? What would you say to him? What would you say? You would say, I, I think you may be missing the purpose of the watch. You may have misplaced the purpose of a watch. You're trying to make it means something it doesn't mean. You're trying to create it to do something it wasn't meant to do. Last week we talked about the word, the logos. The logos is, is the, the depth of the purpose of a thing. What it's for. You see, what, what this story is all about in Matthew chapter 1 is that you're worth is expressed in the fact that God came near. Your worth, your worth can never be greater than God himself appearing in flesh on your behalf. There's no greater worth, and there's no greater way, uh, Oppenheim said, the best way to send a message is to wrap it in a person. Isn't that beautiful? The best way to send a message is to wrap it in a person. That's your worth. That's your worth. Gould concedes. Stephen Jay Gould, I, I read that quotation, uh, the scientist. He says, science is not a heartless pursuit of objective information. It's not. He says... It is a creative human acti a creative human activity. It's geniuses acting more as artists than as information processors. That's from the same book. Artists 
Here, a man struggling. One of, one of the great uh, adversaries of faith of our time. Struggling. Struggling for meaning. Trying to hit the nail with the watch. And here it is, staring you back in the mirror, mirror on the wall. Your logos. Your purpose is for him because he's made you for himself and your heart will be restless until you rest in him. That's where we get our significance. Now, how do we grow it? That's where we get it. Now, how do we grow it? Well, God has made us for him, but he's also made us for each other. He's made us for one another. He's made us for other people. So the answer to the question, how do you grow in significance across the trajectory of your life? How do you grow in significance has to do with other people. A couple of books. One is... uh, one is, is called Failing Upward. Or actually, it's called Falling Upward. Falling Upward, not Failing Upward. Falling Upward. By Richard Rohr. And another called Halftime by Bob Buford. Both these books talk about uh, the difference between the first and second halves of your life. But it, don't, don't think of it as, well, if you're a young person, you're thinking, okay, well, I'll get to that in the second half of my life. No, it, it's, it's a way of talking about a pivot that everybody needs to make. That everyone's life needs to pivot at some point. Pivot away from the false self that pursues me, myself, and I, and pivots towards other people in a particular way. Way And there's only one way to pivot. There's only one way to pivot. You see, what Buford discovered was he spent the first half of his life all on himself, accumulating things, acquiring things, achieving things. And he, like George Bailey, ran through the streets wondering, what is it all for? He, like George Bailey, in It's a Wonderful Life, is standing on the precipice, standing on the bridge, thinking about that, that, that none of it amounts to a, a thing. He wasn't finding any significance in his great piles of stuff. And he needed to pivot. Do you know what Jesus means? Do you know what the word Jesus means? It's based on the Old Testament, Yeshua, Joshua. You know what it means? You don't know what it means? Come on. Do <laughs> you know what Jesus means? The word means God saves. Jesus means God saves. Joseph is told, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from what? Now you've heard it, their sins, but let's put it this way. He will save his people from themselves. We've seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. He will save his people from themselves. Joseph is a righteous man. Yeah, I pause there. Sometimes I pause because I want you to really think and hear what's being said. Let's read verse 19 again and see how Joseph is 
demonstrates this great principle. This great pivot from the first half to the second half of life. He says this. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? That's justice, right? Do unto others, then run, right? Do unto others as they did to you last time you were together, right? Do unto others if you can get away with it. Being a just, self-justifying man, and, the word there is kai, and, and. In the first chapter of John, it says, Jesus dwelt among us full, full of grace and truth. So Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. See, here's a man who had pivoted. Here's a man who wasn't trying to justify himself. Here's a man who had something to give to somebody else. Here's a man who saw that someone had made a mistake or thought he had. This was before you know, he had the vision of the dream and realized that, that, that it was the Holy Spirit that, that brought the light, new life in, into the womb of Mary. And at that time, though, at the time, he thought that she had been unfaithful. And so you get to see and look into the character of this man, Joseph, the father of Jesus. Who would God choose to be the father of the Lord? Who would God choose to be the father of Jesus? A man full of grace and truth. Being a just man. You see, why is it? Why is it that some people are able to be a life-giving spirit to other people, they're able to pour themselves into other people's lives joyfully, cheerfully, and other people, not so much. Scriptures say that Adam was a, was a living soul, but Jesus was a life-giving spirit. What do you want to be when you look in the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, am I doing any good at all? What do you want to be? Do you want to be a living soul? Do you want to be a life-giving spirit? What makes you able to pour life, to give life to the people around you. It's to do business with Jesus. God saves. It's to know, it's to know God as Jesus. It's to know God as God saves. It's to know God as the one who would save you because only people who know Jesus, only people who know Jesus continue to bring Emmanuel into the world. This is amazing. You look at these different words for Jesus, for the, for the Lord, for the incarnate, for God incarnate. It says, you, Joseph, you call his name Jesus, but they will call him Emmanuel. Do you notice that? She'll bear a son, will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what? To fulfill the covenant written on, on, on the law of your heart, on the, on the tablet of your heart. When you know the Lord as Jesus, then you bring him again and again and again into the world as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Where is God when it hurts? Where is God during that, that period of time that was so dry? Where was God when I needed him most? Where is he in your life when you're around those people who are wondering where he is? Have you pivoted from the first half of life to the second? Richard Rohr, he says this. 
once you experience being loved when you are unworthy, once you experience your worth in the very place where you are unworthy, being forgiven when you did something wrong, quid pro quo, thinking eye for an eye, all of that kind of justice thinking turns into a huge ocean of grace where you stop counting and calculating. Carson, D.A. Carson said this, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. (laughs) If he had perceived our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from God. Our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us Jesus, Savior. You see, we don't know what we're for. That's our great alienation. We think we're for ourselves. No wonder there's so much anxiety. We think that the watch can hammer in a nail. We've missed our great purpose. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in him. God has made us for one another. And so as Bob Buford says in his book, he says, he says my fruit grows on other people's trees. Have you gotten to a place in your life where you can find great joy in seeing the fruit of your life on other people's trees? That was George Bailey. George Bailey, who wasn't the hero, the war hero. He wasn't the big shot who discovered plastics like his his best friend. He was... was doing, you know, the tire drive during the war. He was trying to keep this building and loan together and helping people uh, be able to, to put a decent house up. And throughout the course of the movie, you see him and how time and time again he's helping. His fruit is growing on other people's trees because he had pivoted. His life had pivoted. You see? Have you pivoted? to where your life is a God with us kind of expression? Have you dealt with Jesus so that when you're around other people, people can sense Emmanuel? Hear these verses that we're about to sing as the band comes up. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. 
fall on your knees. Hear the angels' voices. O night divine, when Christ was born. You're in the middle of a movie on your significance. I know it. I can see it. I feel it myself sometimes. We want to sate our desire for significance through the successes we can measure, and it will never, never fill the void. And so this Christmas season, in the middle of your movie on whether you matter, receive the Savior again. Perhaps for the very first time. The message of the season is that God saves so that he can be with you, so that your life may pivot and you may bear fruit, even if it's only, but especially if it is only on other people's trees.